We are in Revelation chapter 4, and uh, we talked about the fact that verse 1 is not the rapture. Uh, we looked through the presentation of that in our circles of the typical interpretive uh, schematic that they use or interpretation that they take. We saw how it didn't really line up with how we interpret other passages of the Bible, and so we uh, wanted to take a fresh look at it. And a, the conclusion, I don't know how well I got to it, uh, other than just stating it at the very end, is that, guess what? John went to heaven. That's what's being communicated here. We are not looking for a lot of uh, additional information. We are not looking for symbols, and we're not looking at at representations of either people or events. So, no, I do not believe that the door that was opened in heaven is a representation of Christ. We do not associate the voice that he heard with the shout of the archangel. Uh, we do not uh, associate the fact that the voice was like a trumpet with the trumpet of God. Uh, and we do not uh, conclude that John is a representative of the church. None of those things uh, do we see as just good interpretive uh, work. It's just not. Uh, and if we did that kind of work anywhere else in the Bible, we would be castigated for it in our fellowship. And But somehow, we get to Revelation, we're allowed to do those kinds of things, and uh, we're going to avoid that. And so, uh, really, all we got through last week was that John uh, was called to his heavenly encounter and that's going to set the stage for what we're going to find in the rest of chapter 4. And I would contend that the balance of this chapter is not prophetic material in the sense of sharing with us prophetic symbols uh, or future information, but simply is a description of what he uh, encountered upon his arrival in heaven. Uh, we are told that he was in the Spirit upon hearing those words come up here, uh, that he is going to be shown things which will take place after this. And we did talk about what does the this refer to. Um, and we saw the various different choices of after this, uh, whether it refers to uh, different time periods or events or uh, in his own life, in history, um, or if it is really going right back to the statements saying you're going to be seeing things that are uh, what has been, what is, and what is to come um, after this. And so uh, we really drove that this is not referring to after the rapture, that this does not refer to the rapture, uh, what, that everything from verse 1 of chapter 4 following is everything uh, following the rapture. And that would be the typical handling of that word this referring to his arrival in heaven but obviously um, it just doesn't work with the context of what we're doing and applying our interpretive rules it doesn't work so we're coming in to John's arrival in heaven and uh, there is I believe one thing that is being communicated uh very carefully, and its groundwork is being laid out for us in very dramatic fashion and very typical fashion for prophets. And again, as I've been sharing, uh, John is a 
Hebrew prophet. He's going to follow much of the same uh, patterns of writing, uh, styles, that we find in the Old Testament prophets. We, we just can't interpret the Old Testament prophets one way and come to Revelation with a whole different set of rules. Uh, we want to bring those forward into Revelation. We want to use them as best we can. And in fact, we are invited to do so. And I would contend that if there's any chapter in Revelation that invites you to remember uh, the Old Testament prophets, it is this chapter. And what we are going to find is its strong correlation to what other prophets have seen upon their arrival of heaven. In fact, on several occasions, it's verbatim what they saw. Um, we have a little additional information from John than what we have from other prophets, but it is still the same scene that they are seeing. And that's critical for us to understand. So if you want to take the information of chapter 4 and say this is future um, after the rapture, the rapture is in verse 1 and everything here is future, then you must take the exact same view, I would contend, with a book like Isaiah and chapter 6, which we're going to spend a lot of time in this, this evening. And so either we have to recognize the correlation and be invited to bring forward out of our study of the Old Testament into Revelation the tools and the information that we're given in the Old Testament, or we uh, have to project this back and say that Isaiah wasn't describing what he was really seeing, that this isn't what the throne room of God looks like, but it's all information about the future. And we're going to find, again, these same elements. And so sometimes I feel like I'm spending more time unteaching <laughs> than teaching. And I know last week was just unteaching. That's all it was. I was unteaching what has been taught for uh, many years, for about 100 years. Uh, and we're going to do a little bit of that more this, this evening as well. I have to uh, because of the nature of what's given to us, but um, uh, I'm going to try to press forward. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word and for its richness and fullness. And Lord, we want to be impacted by it tonight as you intended it to be, to be a, uh, to confront us with who you are and, and that there is a great difference between your abode of glory and this place. And that we are of this world and you are of that one. And that you have called us into your world by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that uh, that force of impact, of, of message, of principle might call us to a humble response, bringing glory to your name. And it's in that name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, let's... Uh, Read. Uh, the best thing to do is start by reading the text before us. Verse 2, it says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Uh, 
around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. All right, so John arrives in heaven, and uh, we are confronted with a heavenly scene. And one of the things, how do I get this started up? I need to start this, don't I? All right, projector is on. We are confronted with a scene, and this scene isn't unusual to us. Um, We should be familiar with it, because as you're going to read here very shortly in Isaiah chapter 6. Let's go ahead and turn here while I'm waiting for that to warm up. Let's not waste any time here. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6. I think most of you here are familiar with this. If you aren't, we want to get familiar with it tonight. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each having, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he flew his, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down so the holy seed shall be its stump. All right. Enter. There we go. It's coming. So this is the description. Does it sound familiar a little bit to you? It sounds almost precise, doesn't it? We have a little bit different information from each one, and we're going to share those. 
And so I would contend that what John has walked into is a presentation of heaven. And I say that very carefully because he is not seeing heaven as it, it was in his day. He is seeing heaven as it was in Isaiah's day. And heaven is going to change over the course of his uh, experience there. That God has not taken John into the future first, but he is taking him very deliberately into the past particularly in a time before the cross. You can see the cross on our slide here is way down there, and you can see that I haven't even reached into John's present day nor into the future. We're going to be talking about the pre-Christ period of time. And as I share, we're going to have several timelines. There's room down here for a couple more, three more, um, but this is what's going on on earth. We're also going to see what's transpiring in heaven. And so you find these two timelines that are going to be interacting. And the question again is where are we at? We know where we're at. We're in heaven in this text. In, in John, or Revelation 4, John has obviously arrived up into heaven. And so he is there in that heavenly realm. He's going to see the heavenly place. We're not really engaged on earth. We're not engaged with any of the events going on on earth or the other people on earth really yet. That's really going to uh, not take place until late, uh, later into chapter 5. Not even at the beginning of chapter 5 of Revelation do we get into that. And so we're going to spend some time, and because we're associating it with Isaiah, let's take ourselves right... Oh, that's not the place. Where I, how do we get there? Yep, okay. There. All right, sorry about that. Is that from closing it? We're going to take ourselves right to this period of time, this is the uh, breaking up of Israel. And, of course, we have Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. Didn't quite get on the chart. But uh, we're in this time period. So this is the time of Isaiah the prophet. And so uh, we've read Isaiah chapter 6. And what John is seeing is precisely what Isaiah saw when he arrived. And I would contend that Ezekiel saw something similar to it as well and others of the Old Testament prophets. And when they saw heaven... This is what they saw. Now Moses was taken there and he was shown uh, something in heaven as well. He was shown the perfect temple that they were going to make a, a, a dim replica of on earth. Um, but we, and we're going to reference the temple a little bit later on in Revelation where he's going to talk about the glory of the Lord uh, in the temple, um, filling it. And so we're in this time, we're in the time of Isaiah, and what do we see? We're in heaven and we are confronted with a throne. Very clear. We are not representing anything else. This is not representing Christ's authority established on earth or any activity of the church or lack of activity of the church. It is simply what he saw in heaven upon his arrival um, as a prophet of God. And the descriptions line up really well with Isaiah, don't they? So let's look at the characters he saw. First he saw seraphim. Uh, the I am at the end of a word is simply the plural. And so seraph is singular. And he saw what he called, what Isaiah called, the seraphim. Uh, so he saw a number of them. But Isaiah doesn't tell us how many there were. But he does name them. Now John tells us exactly how many he saw, doesn't he? How many of these creatures did John see? Well, let's look at the description of Isaiah first. 
Isaiah says that the seraphim had six wings, two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and they cried to one another, uh, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Let's go to Revelation 4. See if there's any creatures that match up with this description in Revelation 4. Um, he gets there, um, and uh, we're not introduced to these first. First, we're given 24 elders. That's in verse 4. Uh, but we actually jump down in verse 7. I'm sorry. Verse 6, we're introduced that before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back, and that's reminiscent more of Ezekiel's description. The first creature was like a lion, another one like a calf, like a man, and like a flying eagle. And then verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, Uh, What they've seen is essentially the same entities. They've seen six-winged. Now, I'm not about to sit here and say that there are no other six-winged creatures. But there's such strong identification. They sing the same song. They're in the same location, right around the throne. They have the same uh, layout, if you will, of structure of the six wings. Uh, Yes, Isaiah gives us different information about them, uh, slightly than than John, uh, and then we can add in some of Ezekiel's descriptions as well. But we, we should be able to conclude that these are the same creatures. But we don't. We take John's description, and we because we already have the rapture that has already occurred, we are looking for New Testament imagery when we get to heaven. And so the typical handling of the four living creatures with six wings who are around the throne saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, is that these are a symbolic representation of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they build that over the description of them as ones like a man, and and I referenced this a little bit in one of Bill Science classes when he talked about uh, the images, uh, of the, the pictures of the Gospels, um, and so they say, well, this one is one of the Gospels. This is another description of the Gospels. This is another one. This is another one. Uh, and the, the flying eagle. And, and so they, they have, instead of John describing something, these are all now symbols of New Testament entities. And, and it's handy. There's four Gospels and there's four living creatures. Um, so what do the six wings represent? What are the six things in the Gospels that that they use. Well, once we start down this road, we now have to start dis- assigning everything. He has simply described these living creatures that they, while they have a similar structure, a similar song, they have some different features. Um, by the way, you could very easily also identify these with other things that come in for, couldn't you? What other things come in for? Come on, think back to your Old Testament. Um, there was four horsemen riding to and fro. There's four directions, north, south, east, and west. There, there's every, every, what is that? That's not a tetrad, that would be, yeah, tetrad, isn't that four? Help me out, engineers. 
That's three. Quadrad. Okay, every quadrad that's out there, you can attach to these four and you can manipulate these descriptions to say, well, this must be that. And by, by the way, this is what numerologists do. They take numbers and they try to connect them all up and, they, and that's the, the way. Um, but the obvious information is that what we have here are the same creatures Isaiah saw with the same purpose, the same job description, that they are singing this song. And the indication in the passage isn't that this is new, but this has been going on. This is their ongoing job so far. Since the time they were created until John chapter 4, this is what they've been doing. Singing this song and bringing, adding glory to the throne room of God. We're in the same place, the same structure of being, with the same song, the same job description, and somehow we don't walk away thinking, he just saw what Isaiah saw. And I don't get it. Because when I read this, and I read Isaiah, and I read Ezekiel, I'm saying, they saw the same thing. A little bit different information, because their attention was on different things. Um, if we had someone walk through here and ask you guys to describe it, each one of you would describe that person somewhat differently. Okay, the ladies might say what color the hair was, and what style shoes they had on. Uh, I don't know what the guys would say, you know, he walked kind of, maybe how they walked or carried himself, um, because your attention to, is to different details. So certainly there's some different details shared, but we can't miss what is common to them. And so while Isaiah doesn't tell us there's only four seraphim, we know there's more than one, and we know that they're real creatures because one of them came and talked to him. It says then one of the seraphim, one of them. So one seraph comes up and, and has to deal with, with Isaiah's uncleanness. Has to touch his lips with coals from the throne of God. We're going to see that connection later on in Revelation as well. And so uh, these are ones who are handling things individually. And by the way, he didn't just have wings. He also had a hand. It says that in his hand, in verse 6 of chapter 6 of Isaiah, um, he had a live coal uh, with the tongs. He'd taken the tongs. So um, they had some features that were, were ones that we would associate with, and, uh, but they're each unique. These four creatures, each were unique, and John was to share their uniqueness. And so I have a difficult time associating the four creatures with the four Gospels based upon um, the identification of their, of their features, of their facial features that John seeks to communicate. That he's like a man, like a calf, like a flying eagle. Um, what's the other one? can't remember. Just lost me. Uh, lion, sorry, missed the lion. Okay, and so, yes, it, it is nice to think about this one representing, you know, Jesus as king, the, the, the kingly gospel. This one as his, the Passover lamb, the lamb gospel. Um, this one as, as Jesus as, as man, uh, the human gospel, and the flying eagle. What's left? <laughs> okay, and so you, you, it, it is inviting to certainly go in that direction, but we have these creatures described, and 
and we have no other place to uh, bring that meaning into that. Uh, we have no other explanatory passage sharing that. We have the creatures engaged in ministry just like they were in Isaiah's time, well before the Gospels were there. Could they be creatures there that emphasize different facets of God? Absolutely. That here I am, the creature who is here to emphasize and to, and to say, holy, holy, holy is the lion. Holy, holy, holy is the sacrifice, the, the one. Holy, holy, holy is uh, the, the soaring eagle. Holy, holy, not, not the eagle, but the representation of God as we see in that individual. Yes, and the, and the man. Yes, the, we can see those reflecting those facets of Christ or of God around the throne. But that would not be um, beginning at the Gospels or in John's day or after the rapture. Um, that would have been all the way back that God held these attributes and that we should see within the heavenly realm, guess what? Just what we see here. What do we see here? Do we see everything looking alike? Does everybody look alike? Do even snowflakes look alike? No. What do we see? Variety. God loves variety. Look at the, the variety of life he has put on this earth. Well, we shouldn't be surprised to see anything different when we get to heaven in his heavenly creation. Um, we, our, our painting of heaven is kind of blah, isn't it? Everything's white, there's clouds, and we all kind of dress alike and look alike. Right? Isn't that kind of the imagery of heaven that we are given many times? But this place, I mean, there is color here. What is above the throne? We didn't get that in here. A rainbow. Now, you and I think of a rainbow as a scale of colors that we see, but it says that it was like an emerald. It was maybe all the greens, I don't know. But it was uh, that which he saw. This is a bright and colorful place, and we see the variety. So we have seraphim. We don't know how many from Isaiah, but we do know how many from John. We, we know that they have six feet, or six feet, six, wing, six pairs of wings. We don't know what the wings do from John, but Isaiah tells us what they do at the wings. Isaiah doesn't tell us what they each look like distinct from each other, but John does. And so each one is going to pick out certain things, but they are certainly talking about seeing the same things. Well, let's go on. The next thing we have is elders. In John, I keep saying John. John's the author. Revelation's the book. Revelation 4, these are the first ones that are introduced. Um, you might say, well, Isaiah never mentioned anything about elders. Well, just hold on. We'll get there. Maybe not in chapter 6, but we'll get there. Uh, verse 4, and this is pretty critical because this is another thing that's being used to represent something else. It says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and, and uh, we didn't get 24 little thrones around here. Um, we can shrink this to miniature and slap a little 24 around there, but we have 24 thrones. But in Isaiah 24, 23, Isaiah also talks about that in heaven there were these elders. Let's read that real quick. Isaiah, Isaiah 24, 23. Sometimes I get them mixed backwards, but I think we got it right. 
um, is talking about the coming judgment of the Lord and uh, 23 talks about the moon is going to be disgraced, the sun ashamed, uh, the moon will be darkened, the sun will be darkened. The Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that's the millennial kingdom, and before his elders gloriously. And so the elders are always related to the reign of God. Well, we're in his throne room. Why wouldn't you expect the elders to be represented there, representing the reign of God? And so here they are. There's 24. And I got to tell you, I'm in seminary. And uh, one of the guys, uh, you know, you have every now and then they'd have open seminary. You could ask questions of certain profs or speakers. And uh, one guy, Whoever, who are those 24 elders anyway? And everyone just kind of says, the party line is that the 24 elders are representative of the church. Handy, you got 12 tribes, 12 apostles. The 12, 12 is 24. And so these must represent the church. They have crowns, and we're all expecting crowns. They, they are, have little thrones, and so we're expecting to reign with Jesus. And so it's very attractive to, for us to say, well, the 24 elders are representation of the church. Now, don't forget that we've already made someone else in this chapter representative of the church, right? Who is that? John. So we've already, in verse 1, made John the representative of the church, and now we come to 24 hours, now they're the representatives of the church. So which one is it? Well, I don't believe that John is really giving us any prophetic material in terms of of symbolic language. He is giving us what he has seen in the heavenly realm, that there are elders who are there around the throne as well, who represent the reign of God that one day will be on the earth, that the elders will also come with him when he reigns on earth in his millennial kingdom. But in this reference, he is in heaven still. In Isaiah 24, they're going to be on earth with Jesus. They're going to be in his kingdom. And they have some relationship to his reign over Israel. Um, and here we find the 24 elders serving before the throne. Yes, they're clothed in white robes, but others will be clothed in white robes as well. They do have crowns of gold on their heads. And I do not discount any of that. Uh, I would fully anticipate it. Now, could these be representatives of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles? Very possibly. Representatives of the complete people of God. Um, but there's a difference between being the representatives of it and being the symbolic presentation of it. But I would contend that we see 24 elders. And why are they 24 individual creatures? Because they come and talk to John one at a time. They come and engage him one at a time. One on one. Or one elder to John. Here's me talking to you. And the elder is going to come up to John and says, what's the problem? Just like the creature individually went and did this act on behalf of Isaiah, um, then if, the, if, the, if these seraphs are symbols of the four Gospels, then one of the Gospels went and did that. Um, and, and the symbolism, once we make this all symbolic, it gets very messy. I'm not afraid of that, but it's unnecessary in the text. 
we have the 24 elders. We have reference to them in the Old Testament that there were elders. Again, not numbered, but John is really into sharing with us numbers. Um, but they are individually uh, in, interacting with him. They're individually participating in the worship that has apparently been going on since before Christ. In addition to this, of course, we have the Spirit of God, the sevenfold Spirit of God that is before the throne, the seven lamps, uh, which uh, Isaiah doesn't reference, but I wanted to share these two. And then, of course, the song. And, and the song, I think, is critical. Uh, in fact, I think it's one of the keys to unlocking Revelation is what is heaven saying? Because heaven's song is going to change as we go through Revelation at least twice. And that is um, noteworthy. Why? We are in the abode of God, of the changeless God, in the environment of his glory, and it's going to change. Well, let's look at the song. Holy, holy, holy is how it starts. The focus is on God's holiness, obviously. Um, And that is going to not uh, resurface significantly until much later with a different group. And again, they're not going to sing about it particularly. They are going to join some other aspects of the song. But this holy, holy, holy is the presentation of God in the Old Testament. He is a holy God. You cannot meet his standards. Here's the law. Try to even meet that. You can't even keep the law. How are you going to measure up? And when Isaiah is confronted with the holy, holy, holy God, he recognizes the problem. The problem is is that I am not qualified to be here. I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. I deserve to die right now because I am staying in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One. The Holy, Holy, Holy One. And so this representation is, by and large, overwhelmingly by and large, an Old Testament view of God. Let's go on. The song in John in Revelation 4 um, talks about that He is the Almighty and the eternal God. Here in John 4, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, the who was and is and is to come should immediately bring to our mind a name from the Old Testament. What's that name? Come on. What's that name from the Old Testament? Was, is, and is to come. I am. The Tetragrammaton. Y-H-W-H. Jehovah is how scholars pronounced it olden days. Nowadays they prefer Yahweh, but historically the Y in Hebrew is a J sound. And so that's where they came up, Jehovah. Um, and the W is more of a V. Um, although modern Hebrew has more adopted the uh, uh, English phonetics to it. But uh, that's where we get the word Jehovah. We added the vowels because there are no vowels. There's Y-H-W-H, all consonants. And uh, this is the eternal one. 
the one that Moses met on the mountain, the one that, that when you go to Israel and say, who sent you? I am sent me. Jehovah, the eternal one, the one who always is. And so when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, everyone knew what he was saying. <laughs> He's the almighty one. He's the one who was, is, and is to come. He always is, has and always will be. He's the eternal one. And then in verse 11 of Revelation 4, it says, You are worthy. All right? And all the songs talk about the worthiness of God for worship. All of them do. But their emphasis is going to radically shift throughout the book. And so we're going to pick up on those as they go. And so we're going to begin with where it starts. Oh, Lord, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power for what? For creating. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The focus of heaven in this period of time is on the so far greatest work of God, and that is creation. That at this point in history, nothing greater than God's work of creating existed. So what would heaven sing about? You're the creator. And theologically, uh, before the, the work of Christ, the accomplished work of Christ, this is the single grace act of God. And so on the mountain, he tells Moses that you will work, labor six days, the seventh day you rest, because you are going to worship me in my greatest act, and that is creation. So you're going to worship on that day I rested so that you are signifying that you recognize my act of creation. This is Old Testament heaven. That's entire focus is on the holiness of God and his singular great works thus far is creation. That he's the creator. Does he cease to be these later on? No, but he is going to um, put it up a notch. He's going to do something greater than creating. There's something bigger God is planning on doing than just being your creator. That should be enough. I, I, Romans 1 is there, okay? That's enough. God created you. He deserves your your worship, your, your adoration, your service. He deserves your loyalty. He deserves your life. You owe it to him. Um, that's certainly enough, but it wasn't all that God had planned. But at this point, in this heaven that John is introduced to, that is the focus of the entire heavenly scene. It is focused on his holiness, which I would contend calls us to the law, and it focuses on him as the almighty eternal creator, which focuses us to that greatest act of God prior to Jesus Christ. Everything here communicates that John has entered into not present-day heaven for him, but he has gone into uh, given an opportunity to look into um, 
heaven a few years earlier. Now, I've put this way back here even before the cross. But technically, I could have put this anywhere from this symbol of the cross all the way to uh, this symbol of the created earth. Anywhere in there, I could have put this vision because it was all the same. From creation to the, even past the cross. I would contend that, that it didn't impact heaven until Christ ascended so even his resurrection, I, wouldn't, I could still put heaven as looking like this description in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6. That it isn't until the arrival of Christ in heaven that things changed, which we're going to see next week. And so here we are. Well, what does holy, holy, holy look like? Well, here's what holiness looks like. Are you ready? And I derived a lot of this out of Isaiah and the other prophets. But let's look what holiness looks like in the Old Testament. Because um, this is the focus of the singing. This is the focus of the attention, both here in John and in Isaiah, in Ezekiel. Um, and in fact, in Isaiah, if you want to jump over to Isaiah 6, you can't miss it. Um, God is not interested in seeming to help anyone. Sounds weird, but he says, um, I want them to hear the truth, but not understand it. I want them to see the truth, but not perceive it. Hmm. That's what holiness looks like. That judgment. So let's look at God's holiness. Let's see, where am I at? Oh, I didn't click on the right thing. Here we go. Got to click the right place. So we're in this time period uh, from creation on. This is what the heavenly throne room looks like. It's much more than just a throne. There's obviously 24 little thrones. There's elders. There's creatures. There's all this activity. There's singing. There's there's music. There's um, uh, color and activity, always. Um, we, of course, have the first representation of God's holiness as the curse. You deny me, here's the result. Switch over to here for the sake of our podcast. And so here's the curse. This is an expression of the holiness of God. His holiness demands penalty. For that disobedience, there's a penalty. There's a curse that comes upon man. It moves on. We come to uh, man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. What does a holy God have to do? He has to judge, and the outpouring of his wrath is in the flood. This is what holy, holy, holy looks like. This is the demands of holiness all the way through. And these are going to be critical throughout the book of Revelation for the future. That we not disassociate this. This doesn't go away. It, it hasn't been supplanted. It's been uh, bettered. We'll put it like that. I use a Hebrews word. Um, we have confusion because men were together and doing things coordinated fashion and thought they could be like God. And God says, there's nothing these people can't do if they can all talk to each other. So it brings confusion. This is what holiness looks like. This is what holiness looks like in Egypt. 
We have the plagues. And the plagues particularly because they sound a lot like Isaiah, don't they? They got to see the mighty power of God, but they didn't get it. They heard it. They didn't understand it. They saw it, but they didn't perceive it. They continued in rebellion. This is what holiness manifests itself because, not because holiness is mean, but because sin is wicked. Sin demands a holy God to act. And he has done that repeatedly. And then, of course, the saddest part is when it happens on God's people and they're divided and then eventually they're taken to captivity. We probably could add captivity there as well. And that brings us right into the text of Isaiah. And listen, you've gone so far, you've done so much against me that my holiness demands that I treat you as not my people who are my people. That's frightening. For God to have this kind of message, this is what holy, holy, holy requires. Requires this. And we're going to come back to this when we get into the future age. But I want to contend with you that this is not that age. That this is rightly described by our dispensationalists as an age of grace. Yes, we see on a small scale that we're going to talk about when we get into chapter 6. And you might say, well, that's not a small scale, Pastor, but it is, really. Um, consequences of sin. But we're not going to see this kind of judgment that we have seen throughout this history. We are not going to see this direct outpouring during this age. This is the church age. It is the age of grace The day will come where holy, holy, holy will be reestablished on earth. It will require the outpouring of wrath comparable to what we saw in the Old Testament. What is going to change? What is going to, what's going to affect this um, is going to be the work of Christ. And so I will contend with you that we're not yet looking for any symbols in chapter 4. We are simply seeing heaven as it once was. This is the heaven all the prophets saw. And the first prophet to see it change, unless you want to include Elijah that was up there (laughs) having been translated, and it was there to actively see it happen, was John. He's going to see heaven transformed, radically moved. And that's the power of what we are being seen, of what we're seeing. We are seeing a heavenly timeline being established, not by going to the future, by going to the past, saying, what was heaven And what did the work of Christ mean in heaven? And that's going to, both of those things, both of those principles must be in place to really understand and to fully justify what is going to come. So for those that want to justify God's judgments, we have the basis of it. He's holy, holy, holy. 
for those who there are very few of these that want to try to how, what right do we have not to avoid his judgment? I don't hear anyone hardly ever asking that question. Um, well, it's going to be the work of Christ. The next song next week. I got a lot farther this week than I thought I was going to get. Um, that means <laughs> Ken's got a lot of work for next week. Uh, <laughs> but this is what holiness looks like. This is where we find it. And it calls us to understand that that the work of Christ can do great things in us, but it, it was it, it genuinely is the work of history, as we're going to see next week particularly. But it doesn't negate this. Just as Christ didn't negate the law, He completed it. The holiness of God was satisfied in Christ. And now Christ has that right, if you will, to judge. We're going to see that played out throughout the book of Revelation when there's going to be a time when the opportunity to accept Christ is gone. Well, once that's gone, what's left? Well, you have to go back to holy, holy, holy. And that's what we're going to see happen on earth in the future. Our future. Well, not our future, the church, but future on earth. This timeline. This green timeline. We're going to see the wrath of God being poured out similarly to what we saw from a holy, holy, holy God in the curse, the flood, the Babel at the Tower of Babel, at uh, the plagues on Egypt, and of course the division and exile of God's people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Again, we thank you for an opportunity to look in your word. And Lord, we do uh, thank you for a powerful presentation of your glory land. And we look forward to being active participants there. Lord, we know that to do so um, requires uh, us to be transformed. That our sin, that this flesh uh, inhibits that and in fact disqualifies us from it. And so we feel much like Isaiah many times. Woe is us. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of Christ on our behalf. It gives us not only a place there, but an intimate one. Lord, we continue to pray you might guide our time in your word to let it impact our lives as it has done your people in times past. In Christ Jesus' name.